we're going to continue and look at an early church worship service, specifically targeting the first 100 years of the church. And from this, we're going to get it with a, an interesting little switch. Um, let's do it this way. We started last week with our time machine. We'll get back in the, the, the time machine uh, uh, and we'll go back into Roman times one more time just because I worked so hard on that special effect. We will use it one more time. Now, Bob asked me, Dr. Bob asked me, he said, uh, man, where'd you get that picture of, of early Roman times? And it's very easy. It's on the internet. Um, that is a, a, a reconstructed scene from a movie set that was trying to be as accurate as it could of the Roman era. And so uh, uh, I grabbed the, the, the slide out of it and used it. You'll see the roads were semi-paved. That means that it was a good city like Ephesus or like Rome. There were also many towns where you did not have paved roads. But the Romans were big on pavement. It allowed the soldiers to march around. It allowed the chariots to move. And uh, uh, it's something that was important to them. So we talked about church last week. We said if you were going back to the first century to go to church, how would you even know where to go? The early church did not have signs out front that said church meets here. There wasn't a phone book that you could look it up in. Some of the younger generation don't even know what a phone book is. I had a lawyer with me the other day and he said, uh, man, I don't want to use my green stamps up on this. And all of my young lawyers in the room were looking at him like, So I wanted to do a poll. I'm sorry, and you're my poll group. How many of you have no clue what it means to burn your green stamps or use your green stamps? Okay, that's just hilarious. I am officially old. Ask someone who did not raise their hand about green stamps. It's kind of the antiquated way of getting points on your American Express card that you could redeem for posters, if you got enough of them. Okay. Now, so the early church, you can't look it up in the phone book or on the internet. You can't Google it. You got to find where they're meeting. Generally, they were meeting in houses. So we went through that last week and we dealt with the houses and then we dealt with the meals that were at the early church, including communion. We also talked a, a little bit about uh, uh, the synagogues, but I want to go into more detail about synagogues this morning. Now, synagogues were the Jewish worship presence outside of the temple. The temple gets destroyed in 70 A.D. So by 70 A.D., all you've got is synagogue worship. The synagogues were different than temple worship. The temple was presided over by the Levitical priesthood, not so the synagogues. The temple had sacrifices, not so the synagogue. Some of you may be wondering, why don't good Jews sacrifice today? God said sacrifice in the Old Testament. Why aren't they following the law and killing a sheep or a goat? The reason why the Jews quit sacrificing when the temple was destroyed. Because sacrifices were supposed to take place at the temple. So until there is a new temple, 
sacrifices are no longer made. So once the temple's destroyed, you see some changes in Judaism, including worship only at synagogues. But prior to that, there was still worship at synagogues, including over 300 synagogues within Jerusalem itself. So scholars tried to sit down and figure out how the synagogue worship differed from temple worship and what exactly went on in the synagogues. We have good written documentation of synagogue services from the Mishnah, which is a Jewish writing committed to paper in the middle 200s A.D. So you don't have something that's pre-destruction of the temple. You've got the middle 200s. So... Scholars sit there and they debate a little bit about what the synagogues would be like. Now, I've put up the ruins here of a synagogue. This is the ruins of a synagogue at Capernaum. This is likely a synagogue where Jesus would have attended. Jesus of Capernaum, of course, being the home of Peter. And the synagogue itself was was a public meeting place for Jews. What happened at the synagogues... We know some because we get it from the New Testament. We know that there was reading of the prophets. Jesus read the prophets. We know there was instruction at the synagogues. Paul was uh, teaching in synagogues consistently. Jesus taught in synagogues. So if we know that the modern church service, we look at the elements in a modern church service, we can safely see that the elements of reading Scripture and instructing from Scripture date all the way back to the earliest origins of the church and in fact is something the church took on from previous synagogue practice. Now in this sense, we're going to put our word, our our whiteboard up and we're going to learn a couple of things that I referenced last week but we need to go into a little more detail. Within Judaism itself, at least until the destruction of the temple, there were different parties, different sects. Now, the Greek word that's used in our New Testament for this, or that's used by other Jewish writers who wrote in Greek, Josephus, Philo of Alexandria, is the Greek word eresis. Eresis means a a group or a party. And so we've got it, for example, in Acts 5.17, it refers to the party of the Sadducees. In Acts 15.5, the party of the Pharisees. Let's see if we can look at one or two of these real quick, and you'll see the word if we put it up on the screen. Acts 5.17. See how we do on this one. Okay. Give me just a second. I've visited with people instead of getting this focused to start with. Okay. Now we're going to go there. Now we're going to go there. And we are set for the rest of class. This thing is going to really take off. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. Do you see that? Party? That is the Greek word, iresis. 
And so these, this, this is a sect. This is a group. I gave you another passage from uh, Acts uh, 15.5. Let's see. I can, if it's on the right side of the page, I'll show it to you. If it's not, you got to look it up yourself. It is 15.5. But some believers, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them. This is the Jerusalem council where the church is trying to figure out what do we do with these these uh, uh, Greeks, these Gentiles who become Christians, do they have to become Jews first and then Christians? And, and uh, uh, some who belong to the iresis, the, the, the party, the sect. Again, it's the same Greek word, iresis. Whoops. What, what do we do? What do we do? Now, here's the rub. Paul has been arrested. Paul gets put on trial. Same writer. We're still looking at Luke. Luke in Acts chapter 24, verse 5. This is what the Jewish prosecutor says against Paul in trial. We have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, sect has a bit of a pejorative to it with us. It's a little, dis- it's like they're wing nuts, you know? But in Greek, it's the exact same word. It's the exact same word. It again is the iresis. It just means party, group. So in the Jewish mentality at this point in time, those who are Christians are just a different group within Judaism. You got the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees. Josephus writes, bless you, about the Essenes. You've got the Nazarenes, so-called, because Jesus was from Nazareth. And that's just the party that they were. That's the group within Judaism. So there are some scholars who think that the early church in Jerusalem itself formed its own synagogue. And that these were home synagogues. We don't know that for sure. But we do know that the Christians were considered one of these parties or sects. And if we look at early Christian worship, we're going to see that it was very much like synagogue worship with a few changes. But it helps explain why we worship the way we do today. Now, if we went to a synagogue, if this were a synagogue service, we talked last week, we'd have the younger people sitting in the back and the older people sitting in the front. That is ideally because the front seats are seats of honor. So we're told. I have my suspicions. I just don't think they could hear as well. <laughs> you know, not to me, you know, you young guys, you can hear me. <laughs> the rest of you, eh? <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> so that 
the, the men and the women would often separate and segregate. And we're going to look at some passages in a moment that give us more details on that. But one of the things that would happen is there would be prayer. In fact, the synagogue was called oftentimes the prosuke, which means the house of prayer or the place of prayer. I found it interesting when Pastor David was reading this morning from Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, uh, uh, one of the things I, I like to try and do is read along in the Greek while he's reading in the English. It's both a way to keep my Greek uh, uh, up, and it also uh, uh, really impresses whoever's sitting next to me. <laughs> Which is generally my wife... And I live half of my life trying to impress her. But a few of you have got some good Greek in you. And so we were reading Romans 12. And we got to Romans 12, 12. Prosuke. Where he talked about praying for our enemies. Prosuke is to pray a prayer. And that is the word, a place of prayer, that was used for the synagogue. Because the synagogue was indeed a place of prayer. So the synagogue's got scripture reading. It's got instruction. It's got prayer. In fact, one of the prayers of the synagogues that would be offered, if we go back to the PowerPoint, one of the prayers of the synagogue that would be offered was the Shema. The Shema comes from basically three places in the Old Testament. The part we're most familiar with is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. Then there's another passage from Deuteronomy that says a lot the same. Then there's a passage from Numbers that continues to reinforce the same principles. Now, a good Jew would say this three times a day. It's something they knew by heart. But it's also something that would be pronounced and prayed by the church. A declaration. I thought about having those who are comfortable standing, have you stand up and have us read this in unison. And then I thought, you might not want to. And then I thought, well, how am I going to know unless I ask? So those of you who are comfortable and would mind stand, would not mind standing up, stand up. Those of you who want to stay seated, stay seated. But we're going to read the Shema together. Like an early church would have. Except they wouldn't be reading it off a of PowerPoint because they all had it memorized. So we will say it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Thank you. Be seated. Now, good Jews truly did write them in real little letters. And they would roll them up and they would place them in little containers and embed them in the doorposts of their house. And if you ever watch the movie Fiddler on the Roof, you'll see them as they go into the house, kiss their fingers and touch. That's what they're touching. That's what they're acknowledging. Okay? So this is part of the Jewish service. And it's a part that the church took on, though we don't know that the church read the Shema. We think it much more likely that the contemporary church would have prayed the Lord's Prayer. And we quickly see that developing into a liturgical form, but we don't know exactly when that occurred. But the idea of a common prayer is something that's very early and is likely a church inheritance from the synagogue practice as well. Now, what about singing? If you come into one of our churches today, you're going to hear some fantastic singing. We had some great songs this morning. It was a wonderful time of worship. Now, different people like different types of singing. My mom loves a cappella singing. It's what she grew up with in her church. It's what I grew up with, and I still love it as well. Especially in four-part harmony. We grew up in the Church of Christ, and there were many churches of Christ that thought instrumental music was actually something that was bad. And so the churches of Christ have a rich tradition of singing a cappella. And a cappella singing only works if you sing really loud and everybody sings, and it really works well if they sing in four-part harmony. And so a lot of older Church of Christ hymnals actually have shaped notes, triangles and squares and circles, because the shapes associate with do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, and they help you sight read songs you don't know. And it's a fascinating area within the church. There's another fellow that I know who's, who's visited our church before. I was having a conversation with him yesterday. He dropped by and he says, you know, I can't, get into that, that type of singing. He, he, he wants something much more monastically chantish. And that's marvelous. I'm glad he can attend churches that are monastically chanting. But different churches may sing differently. Where does the singing come from to start with? Well, scholars debate this. And here's the reason why. We know by 250 A.D. that they were singing in the synagogues. But there's nothing to indicate when that actually started. Were they singing in the synagogues in the first century or not? Some scholars say yes. Some scholars say no. My opinion is, as I read all of these scholars, is... Probably in some they did and in some they did not. So everybody can go home and be right. But here's what we do know. The church was definitely a singing church. We get the singing from the church extensively. 
Now, we also know that some groups within Judaism were definitely singing at synagogue. So Philo of Alexandria, uh, I've got his book up here about the contemplative life. Philo Alexandria was a contemporary of the first generation church. He wrote in the 40s and the 50s A.D. from Alexandria, Egypt. He was a Jew, a practicing Jew, who wrote in Greek. And so we can read Philo of Alexandria, and in the process of his writings, he writes about one set of of Jews that worshipped called the Therapeuti. The Therapeuti. And he describes the Therapeuti's synagogue worship. This would be contemporary worship with the time Paul forms the, finds the Galatian churches. Founds the Galatian churches. Paul founded. I can do verb tense. Hold on. About the time Paul founded the Galatian churches in his first missionary journey. And so we can read about the Therapeuti, a synagogue practice within Judaism, and they were clearly singing. What's more, they would have something akin to the agape meal. That was our donuts last week and again this week. And after the agape meal, they would have um, uh, 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 teaching. The teacher would stand up and he would teach from Scripture. And then look what happens next. The teaching is followed by a leader singing a hymn composed as an address to God. Either a new one or one of his own composition or an old one by poets of an earlier day who've left behind their hymns in many measures and melodies. After him, all the others take their turn as they are arranged in the proper order while all the rest listen in complete silence, except when they have to chant the closing lines or refrains, for they all lift up their voices, men and women alike. So this is singing that was taking place within that group of Judaism in their synagogues. And it's it's not just singing of, of Scripture, Some people would write their own songs, but they were songs of address to God. That's what we would call worship songs. And so we've got that. Now, then they would uh, uh, have the community meal. So this follows the teaching. You've got teaching. You've got the singing like that. Then there's a community meal. After this community meal, then they rise up all together, standing in the middle of the refectory, the room... They form themselves into two choirs, one of men, one of women. The leader and presenter chosen for each being the most honored among them and also the most musical. Then they sing hymns to God, composed of many measures and set to many melodies, sometimes chanting together, sometimes taking up the harmony antiphonally, one sing, the other echo, or respond, okay, antiphonally. Then when each choir has separately done its own part, they mix and become a single choir. Now, that's going on 
within a group of Jews worshiping in a synagogue setting. And it's very akin to what the early church seems to be doing as well. So the early church has got prayer. It's got instruction. It's got Bible reading. It's got the Lord's Supper. It's got singing. It's got singing in choirs. It's got singing antiphonally. It's got solo performance with people listening. And we get all of this by looking at what they were doing back then. Now, here's my question. What did the singing sound like? Okay. This, to me, is just kind of cool stuff. If this doesn't rev your engine, then that's okay. This revs my engine. I want to show you a picture. That's the Sikolos tombstone. It was found in an ancient town called Tralia. Tralia is near Ephesus over in Turkey. You might remember Tralia because Ignatius, who's on his way to be martyred, wrote those seven letters we read and talked about earlier, a couple of weeks back. One of them was to the church at Tralia. That's the church in the small town where this tombstone was found. Now, if you're looking at that tombstone, you may not be able to make out much of the letters. So I've taken a part of it and I've blown it up for you. And scholars are able to date this by the way the letters are shaped. The, the font if in modern language. The font tells scholars that this dates to the first century, the middle of the first century, to the time of the church being established, Paul's mission trips. That's when this was built or, or placed there. And so, or written upon, I should say. So here you've got just some basic Greek letters. You can see if you start at the left, the epsilon, it's our English E, the iota, which is our English I, and then you see the, the kappa, the K, you're going to get lost on that. You're going to get lost on that because they don't look like ours. That's your Ada and, and that's your L. You're going to get lost. That At the end is the sigma. That's an S, okay? Now, do you see how those are Greek letters? If you look down here, you can see Greek letters again. There's that up at the top row at the end. You've got an omega, I mean uh, an omicron. And a, a sigma, a capital O and a capital S. They start this line that I've just shown you. Uh, capital O and the capital sigma and then another capital O. And those are Greek letters. Now, while those are Greek letters, if you look right above the Greek letters, where I've circled in red, those are not Greek letters. Those are goofy. Those are actually musical notes. This is not the earliest. We've got some Hurrian that's earlier. But in terms of what we're studying in our church class, church history class, this is the earliest Greek melody we've got. That we can actually, scholars can take that and they can put that into modern notation. So, 
if you take those letters out, here are the lines. And what I've done is I've taken the capitals and put them into lowercase Greek. Um, so you've got ho, zone, zase, finu, pros, o, ligon, esti, to, zane. But then you can see above it where I've circled, those are the musical notations. Those aren't words. They're musical notes. So here's what it would look like if you put it on a modern staff. Hozone Zoe. Now, I actually thought about taking someone like Clark who can sight read, but I'd, I've given him absolutely no notice. So it's not fair. But if anybody honestly thinks they could come up here and sight read this melody, it would be hilarious. If not, I happen to have it on an MP3. <laughs> Seeing no takers. Where's Ken Short read? He could auction this away, the chance to do it. Seeing no takers. Let me first translate it into English so you see what was written on this tombstone, the song that was written. While you live, shine. Now, by the way, if you get on the internet and you search for this translation, you will not find it just this way um, because this is my translation. And I'm far from a Greek scholar. I know enough Greek to know that I'm not a Greek scholar. Okay? There's a difference. But I didn't like any of the translations I saw. And, hey, it's my class. So I just translated it myself. So, while you live, shine. Don't grieve at all. Life is short. And the ending time is going to take you away before you know it. That's what's written on the tombstone. But it's written with musical notation. So the question is this. What does it sound like? All right, so that's what a melody would have sounded like in first century Ephesus in the early church. That's kind of cool now, isn't it? I think it's kind of cool that we actually have it. Yeah, thank the Lord for securing this. So here's what we're going to do. I almost, this is, see, I almost did so much for this class. I was this close to really having a good class today. I almost sent it to Phil Keggy and said, would you put a psalm to it so that we've got a psalm? But I did not do that. Maybe I should have. If you think I should have, I'll do it for next week and we'll come back together and sing it. All right, I'll, I'll email it to him and we'll see how he sounds going. Um, but I do want to play it for you one more time because I want you to hear the melody. So here we go. Oh, 
If you read music, you can follow the notes on the staff. He's hitting each one, following it very well. Now, we don't know what key it was in. Could have been sung higher, could have been sung lower. We don't know what voice was used. We've lost track of that. Is it, uh, 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 you know, an opera voice? Uh, did they sing like Bob Dylan? We don't know, but they might have. So we don't know that. But within the framework of all of that, we've got the basic melody down. And so, uh, um, and so that's what the singing would have sounded like. Now, singing in the church. I told you the church was a singing church. Let me throw some scriptures out there for you to consider. Ephesians 5, 19. Look what Paul says to the church at Ephesus, which I might add is a stone's throw away from where the Cyclos tombstone was found. I mean, truly close, closer than, as close as we are to downtown Houston, um, uh, almost, maybe Galveston. Yeah, I bet downtown Houston. Okay, anyway, Paul's giving instructions to the church at Ephesus, and he tells the church the following. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Same word there that uh, was in Pastor David's lesson this morning from Romans 12, poneru in the Greek, to hate what is evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but get be filled with the Spirit. You know, and, and, and his reference there is, you know how people can get drunk and, and um, get almost um, ridiculously silly in some ways? Um, in, a, in a way, Paul's making a contrast there. He says instead of being drunk in debauchery that leads you to do all sorts of foolish, stupid stuff, get drunk with the Spirit. Just take on more of the Spirit than you ever thought you could and let it dictate how you act. Um, it's an interesting contrast. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So sing to one another, admonish one another with psalms. Those are songs out of the Old Testament in our book of psalms. With hymns. Hymns are are songs that are composed by the church. Spiritual songs. Songs composed by the poets in the church. And the church is to sing to one another with this. He wrote to the church at Colossae in the same general area. Uh, Colossians 3.16. He says uh, very much the same thing. He says... 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The church was a singing church. When Paul is talking to the Corinthians about doing things in church in order and trying to to keep some measure of, of, of order so chaos doesn't reign supreme, he says the following in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together in worship, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Oh, if you're going to speak in a tongue, he says, we got some rules here. Two or three at most, each in turn, and someone has to be interpreting. And if there's no one to interpret, then be quiet, go home, and speak in tongues in your closet. That's between you and God at that point. And he gives more instructions. Let two or three of the prophets speak, and others weigh what's said. You know, be silent while people's giving a revelation. God's not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. So reflect that. So that people who might come in as visitors might hear things that edify and lift up and encourage and move them to the Lord. This early church was a singing church. We looked a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how the early persecution was happening to the church. We looked at the writings of a Roman governor in northern Turkey, just south of the Black Sea, called Bithynia, uh, uh, the area of Bithynia. The governor's name was Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger was uh, 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 questioning Christians before he uh, persecuted them, before he put them to death. And he wrote the emperor Trajan about them. And he says, I'm trying to figure out what they're doing that's so wrong. You know, they're taking an oath not to steal. They're taking an oath not to commit adultery. They're taking an oath not to cheat and to talk bad about people. That doesn't seem too horrible to me. They gather together each morning and they sing in honor of this fellow named Christ as if they were singing to a god. Now, that might be troublesome if, you, if he's not an acceptable god to the Roman authorities. So that may have been a problem. That was the persecution way we use this passage. But see how the passage also instructs us. The early church is a singing church. And they would gather together in the morning and they would sing praises to Christ the Lord. Christ as to a God. So the early church is a singing church. Now, Do we have any early Christian song lyrics? I've given you an early melody. How about some early Christian song lyrics? Oh, yeah. We got lots. They're in the Bible. Some of them are called psalms. And the early church was singing psalms. In fact, the word psalms comes from a Greek word for singing. The Greek word for singing is psalo. So you can psalo the psalms. 
because that's what they are. But we have, whoa, more songs than that. We have songs in Scripture. Paul, Mr. Sing and Admonish One Another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs over and over, actually quotes some early Christian songs in his letters. So we've got them. Look, for example, at 1 Timothy 3.16. And I'll put it up on the screen so we can all see it. But 1 Timothy 3.16 is Paul quoting a psalm. We'll give the, the introduction to it by starting in verse 14 so that we take it in context. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Bam! And he quotes a song that they sang in the church. Do you see how it fits with what he's saying here? I need to ease out just a little bit, don't I? Do you see how it fits? He says, how you ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Great indeed, we confess, we sing. This is what we are confessing in our song. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And then here's the song. And the English Standard Version people do a Marvy job of setting it out to make it look like a psalm, a song. He was manifested in the spirit, vindicated by the or in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now that may not sound like a song to you. But it was a song. And the Greek's a little bit different. These nice little words in and by in the Greek, they're all the same word. So the Greek, and this is another reason I've got my Greek New Testament for you today. The Greek gives you this. And even if you don't speak Greek or read Greek, I think it's worth looking at because it, uh, uh, Titus, it's before Titus. It's worth looking at because it shows how in the Greek it kind of lays out different. Okay? Yeah, it's Greek to me. I heard that. You see this? This is it. It's got these ends in it. E-V, it looks like in English, but the V was new, the letter new. So it's an N sound. So when you see E-V, just think E-N. Okay? So, this was, uh, uh, he was manifested in the flesh. Dikaiothe in the spirit. Opthe, uh, seen by angels. And then we get back to Ikaruxthe in, among the nations. In the nations. But you translate it among. Um, Epistusthe in the world, in the cosmos. Analephthe in doxe, in glory. And so, this, you know, it's, in this, in this, in this, in this, in this. And it's got a real good rhythm in the Greek. And that's what it was. It was a song. And so we've got the song that shows the godliness, the mystery of his godliness. 
Now, mystery, when Paul says the mystery of his godliness, Paul doesn't mean something that Sherlock Holmes has to interpret for us and discern. He's talking about a mystery that's been revealed. This is what we now can see. This is what we know. He was manifested in the flesh. Means he existed before he came into the flesh. Jesus is pre-existent. He's manifested. He's, uh, uh, in the Greek, it's, yeah, rothe. Um, Phanero means, uh, 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 in fact, it was in that same cycle, a song. It, it means to be made apparent. He was made apparent. He was manifested. He was visualized, you could say, in the flesh. He was vindicated, declared righteous. If you think about vindicated, you know, uh, uh, vindication means you're, you're declared righteous. Dikaio say in the, in the, dikaio in the Greek. You're, 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 he's righteous in the spirit or by the spirit. Same in word, but in the Spirit's work, in the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was declared righteous. So now we've got Jesus. In the flesh, we see him. In the Spirit's work, we see him vindicated, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations. In the nations, he's proclaimed. So now we've got a Jesus who is seen in the flesh, vindicated in the work of the Spirit, seen by angels, and then proclaimed, told to in the nations, believed on, faith put into in the world, and taken up in glory. So it's Jesus from before the incarnation, manifested, declared righteous, Proclaimed through the world, nations, where faith follows the proclamation and then glory as Jesus is taken away. And we, his body, are taken with him. And that was an early Christian song. Isn't it kind of cool? Okay? So, yeah, they would sing. And Paul's telling them, sing and admonish one another. Sing this puppy. Let it change who you are. All right, let me give you another song. Um, uh, this is one of my favorite songs because it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. This is, in my opinion, one of the most incredible passages of Paul ever wrote. I put this up there with his love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. This may be, it's, it's kind of tough to fight a lot of Romans. This may be my favorite passage Paul ever wrote. And it turns out he's quoting a song for most of it. So I don't even know who wrote it. Maybe he wrote the song. I don't know. I I would love to have some answers to this one day. Hint, hint, Lord. It starts here at the end of this page with this have. Philippians 2, 5, have. Then it picks up over here. This mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who? And at this point, the song starts. And the English Standard Version doesn't set it out as a song. Um, But it is a song. And, and, And scholars differ over whether it's a song of six stanzas 
are of a different length. I've put it out in your handout as a song of six couplets, six stanzas, couplets. Jesus, who was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God, something he had to hold on to, something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what a tremendous, tremendous song. Who, although he existed in the form of God, again, this song starts out with Jesus pre-incarnation. When we worship Jesus as Lord, it's not simply the Savior. It's the Lord who pre-existed Jesus Christ being made manifest in the form of a human, being made subject to other men, walking in humility, suffering, dying, so that God would bring him to life And bring him to glory, bestow on him the name that is above every other name in heaven, on earth, under the earth. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, and every tongue proclaim. See how that's a song? They're proclaiming it in the song as they sing it. But they're proclaiming a song that everyone will eventually sing. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a confession everyone will make. It's just a question of when you make it. There's not going to be any doubt. The unbelievers, the rebellious in spirit, they will reach a point in the history of their existence, albeit not on this earth, where every tongue is going to confess, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our question is, how quick do we get on the wagon? There are other songs. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Hebrews 1, 3. And they're wonderful to look at and think about them as you read those passages as songs, not simply as Scripture. They are Scripture, but they're songs. So, fruit for home. Jesus was having dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus, the Jesus who was pre-existing, who had been manifested in, in flesh, is having this conversation with her and gets particularly close to the woman's problems. And so the woman wants to shift the conversation from Jesus probing her to something a little less personal. My dad would have said, At some point, Jesus had quit preaching and gone to meddling. You know, he was getting a little too close. So she tries to shift it to a debate about where to worship. Our forefathers say you should worship on Mount Gerizim. 
You Jews think we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem? Where do you weigh in on this, Jesus? Jesus' reply is this scripture. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now the word worship, there are a number of Hebrew words that Jesus could have been using. There are a number of Greek words. One of the words that I like the most in Greek is proskuneo. Proskuneo means basically to put your nose on the ground. It's to fall flat on your face. Hishtachavu in the Hebrew. It's to, it is to, to, to uh, I, I, you don't even have an ability to look up sometimes. You just, in awe and in personal shame, you, you just fall down in inadequacy. And woe is me. <laughs> you know, it was Isaiah's worship. And, and, and Jesus is saying, there's going to come a time where people will worship the Father not based on where they are, but based on who he is. See, our English word worship comes from the Anglo-Saxon worth skyape. It means to ascribe worth or value. So there will be people who ascribe value to God because only God has value. Only God is worth thee. We worship him because he alone is worthy. All of those words are related. Worship, worthy. So, so Jesus is saying, that's what's coming. And I look at the early church, and the early church was worshiping. And that's what I want. I want that to be me. I want to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. When we're singing those songs to God in worship, it's not simply hopping through a great melody. We're praying. You know, it, 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 it stuns us sometimes. I know that because... We're all guilty of someone coming in and hugging them while we're singing a song or leaning over and saying something to them. Do we realize that those songs sometimes that we're interrupting are actual prayers? Because if, if, if Sandy's praying and I'm thinking she's praying, I'm not going to generally go, hey, uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. While she's in the middle of a prayer. We just, we need to really tune in to what we're doing because what we're doing is something that's tremendously rich. And it's transformational. That's what Paul is saying. What then, brothers, when you come together, everybody's got a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let everything be done for building up. What we're doing in worship is a time where God is transforming us. You do not come into the presence of God and leave the way you came in. It cannot happen. If you come into the presence of God, you will be changed. But you and I both know that worship is a deliberate act. 
And it's really easy, especially when we've got such a tremendous worship team. We've got such a tremendous choir. Many of you are in it. I got to tell you, sometimes you are so good, I got to work to worship. Because it's easier just to sit and listen to you and think, man, that just sounds great. As opposed to letting you transport me to the throne of God and draw me into that. It's an act of volition to worship the Lord. But I'm going to seek it because I want God to change me. I'm going to make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. All of Psalm 100 that I've started quoting there is a worship psalm. And I want to spend time in the Psalms. I want to spend time in Christian music. I want to spend time worshiping the Lord in church. I want to spend time worshiping the Lord alone. I think through worship, God will change our lives and the world as we honor him. Can I pray a prayer of blessing over you? And I warn you, next week, we are really going to look at 1 John, the next two weeks. We're going to look at 1 John in light of early Christian heresies. So if you're memorizing it, get going. If you're not memorizing it, read it anyway so that you got it in your memory while we're looking at it, okay? God, would you please bless uh, uh, my friends, my family? Would you reach down and touch our hearts as we acknowledge you as our God, our deliverer, our defender, the source of all that is good, our protector, our peace, our comfort, the provider of all of our needs, the love of our hearts, the mender of our broken hearts. Father, we lift you up as God of all, to whom all majesty, all glory, all dominion, all power rightfully rests. And we see it and we come before you, Lord, as your humble servants in awe of who you are. Seeking you to, through your love in Jesus and boldly proclaiming in Jesus' name that we want you to change us, to better reflect your glory in a dark world. Amen. Amen.